Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dame Joan Collins, the actress, author and entrepreneur. Collins is an award-winning actress whose career spans three quarters of a century, including 1950s Hollywood movies, to her role as Alexis Carrington in Dynasty, for which she won the Best Actress Gong in 1982 at the Golden Globes for her performance. Collins has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame for career achievement. In 2015, she was made a dame by the Queen for her services to charity. Over her career, Collins has earned a reputation for her one-liners and go-getting attitude. On her career, she once said, Show me a person who has never made a mistake, and I'll show you somebody who has never achieved much. On looks, the problem with beauty is that it's like being born rich and getting poorer. And on men, I've never yet met a man who could look after me. I don't need a husband. What I need is a wife. Joan now joins me down the line from France. The podcast budget didn't quite cover a trip to the French Riviera. Thanks again for joining me today, Joan. So, Joan, on this podcast, we like to start by rewinding the hands of time to earlier on in your life, perhaps before you were such a household name. And I thought to begin, you were born in a theatrical family in West London and you made your stage debut at the age of nine. Was acting encouraged in your family? Well, I come from a family of uh, theatricals. My grandmother was a dancer and singer and she used to dance and sing with her two sisters and she went around the capes of South Africa entertaining the troops at the beginning of the last century. And in fact, my father was born in South Africa and so then they came back to England on a boat. So my grandmother... Uh, had a boy and, and two other daughters. And the two daughters, my aunts, Lala and Pauline, they became quite famous in review and musical theatre in in the West End. And in fact, my aunt Lala played the lead in a show called Sunny, opposite Jack Buchanan. I've seen that you previously said your father didn't necessarily want you to go into the industry. Is that right? It wasn't really they didn't want me to. They realised my father didn't want me to. My my mother and my grandmother, and they all felt that I would do well. My father, being an agent, he, he was a theatrical agent, and he knew the perils of the profession. So he he tried to discourage it because he said, and he was right, 90% of actors are out of work 90% of the time. And, and very, very few ever make enough money to make a decent living out of it, which is absolutely true. So he was just warning me about the perils. Yes, and you made your stage debut age nine with Ibsen's Dollhouse. So it doesn't seem as though you really ever struggled for work as a child. Well, no, because I persuaded them to let me go to a school called Cone Ripman, in which they did uh, reading, writing, arithmetic in the morning and singing and dancing and music in the afternoon. And it was while I was there that an audition took place for uh, two girls, actually, to play the sons of Nora in a doll's house. And they chose girls because girls are apparently easier to work with than young boys. And so I did that for a month at the at the Arts Theatre in London, which was a great training. And then shortly after that, I went to a boarding school at Tring that was also... Well, actually, it wasn't shortly after that. It was a few years. It was about when I was 13. 
because I definitely did want to be an actress. And again, it was a boarding school that specialized in letting children, girls mostly, it was actually mostly girls, who wanted to be singers and dancers and actresses. And so again, we did the, the proper lessons in the morning and then the, the fun stuff in the afternoon. And then it worked out because at age 16, you trained at RADA, the yes. Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. What was that experience like? Was it a positive one? Oh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. RADA was a great experience because we expanded on everything. We, you know, we, we, we took ballet, we took fencing, we took Shakespeare, Shaw, Coward. We did the whole spectrum. And shortly thereafter, I was doing some modelling to make some pin money, some photographic modelling for magazines. And there I was discovered by an agent who got me some small roles in films. Yes, because you signed, and correct me if I go wrong, with Rank Organisation, and that was the start of you appearing in a, in a lot of British films. Yes, uh, yeah, the Rank Organisation saw me in these, in these small roles, and they signed me up. My first film was called I Believe in You, with some wonderful actors, Lawrence Harvey, um, Celia Johnson, Cecil Parker, Godfrey Turl, and that was a, a, an incredible experience. It was um, directed by Basil Dearden, who was one of the leading directors of black and white cinema in the post-war generation. And so I was under contract to rank for, I think it was about four years, and then they they sold me to 20th Century Fox, to Daryl Zanuck, and I was shipped off to Hollywood. And what was the film industry like at that time? Did you feel as an actress who was coming up that you were taken seriously? It was very, it was difficult to be taken seriously when you're that young. I mean, I was 17. I was always the youngest person on any set. I was always referred to as the girl. And sometimes I would say, you know, I have a name, I'm Joan. But I would say that, and also being pretty, pretty young actresses were not taken that seriously I regret to say and just to talk briefly about that role you mentioned in I Believe in You the British press at the time started referring to you as Britain's bad girl what did you make of that was it a title you relished no I I didn't quite understand it actually I wasn't really a bad girl I was a I was a a, a delinquent I was a, a runaway and I think that they, the press, the British press, like to give sobriquets to, to people. I mean, I, I think I had other... Uh, the coffee bar Jezebel was another thing that they referred to me as. I think it was taken from an, uh, an interview. They didn't... You know, most English actresses on the cinema at that time were rather prim and prissy, the ones that weren't were shipped off to Hollywood, like Gene Simmons. And so I was considered to be dark and exotic looking. <laughs> now, you've had so many roles, but I think one that sticks out is your role in Girl and the Red Velvet Swing. Yes. Which had originally been meant for Marilyn Monroe, but you managed to win it. Well, it wasn't a question of managed to win it. It was the fact that the Evelyn 
Nesbitt, the chorus girl who was the lead, who was supposed to be 17 years old, and apparently uh, Marilyn was 30, and the studio did not think she would be right. So it was just one of those things. I mean, it wasn't a competition per se. It was that I was the girl who was considered more right for the role. Even though I wasn't American, I had to take lessons in American accents. Was there much rivalry between leading ladies when it came to those big parts? Not from my point of view. I'd never felt rivalry between other actresses. You know, you you get what you deserve. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a rat race, that's true. But I've never felt the desire to be in competition with anybody. And what surprised you most about Hollywood? How colourful it was. You know, this was uh, 1955. The war had been over in Europe for 10 years, but there was still a greyness and austerity about it, about the streets. And California, Hollywood, was brilliant sunshine, blue skies, colour TV, amazing people on TV, Lucille Ball with her red hair, Liberace with his mad costumes and fantastic piano playing, Uh, the beauty of the women at parties, the glamour. There was a lot of glamour at that particular point. Women, actresses particularly, used to dress up whenever they went out. You never saw an actress, or an actor for that matter, going out in, you know, sort of crumpled clothes and old beat-up shoes. Does that mean there's a better-dressed Hollywood than today's Hollywood? Uh, Oh, much, yes. (laughs) Much better, yes. Now, the role that I think probably most listeners will know you best for was Dynasty. And it's for that that you have a Hollywood star of fame. Um, You won a Golden Globe. And I was just wondering, you said about Dynasty that it, what gave you was the opportunity to take charge of your career rather than waiting around like a library book waiting to be loaned out. Is that because you felt that you had more creative control? What was it about Dynasty that you think gave you that jolt? Yes, well, I think that I saw this role as a, an opportunity to make something more out of it than just the cartoon character vixen and i wanted to uh, give her more depth and more humanity more humility which was hard to do because they wanted the writers really wanted her to be vicious and evil all the time and i tried talking to the writers about this so we we made her much more sympathetic with her children she was in fact I think was one of the first parents on TV to have great sympathy and understanding for her son, Stephen, who was gay. That was um, a first on television because the the father, the, the Blake character, wanted to almost disown him. And I think also I was able to put some of my own humor into Alexis in in very many ways, so that I think a lot of the things that audiences liked about her was that she was humorous, she didn't take herself that seriously, even though she did take herself seriously in business, very, very seriously, because she was a brilliant businesswoman. But 
I think that there was a slight thing that I did in playing Alexis in which I did a sort of secret wink to the viewer saying, isn't this fun? This isn't really real. But you did feel as though you were listened to when you were coming up with ideas about your character. Well, I'd been listened to before, yes. Don't forget, I had been in over 50 films and I hadn't exactly been a wallpaper or wallflower in those films. Some of them were good, some of them were not good. But the fact of the matter is that if you become an actor, there's a teeny, minute percentage of actors and actresses that get to have the the pick of the roles, that get to choose their roles. And I wasn't necessarily one of those. And I think that people think that when you're quite successful, that you have loads of scripts plonking on your doormat. But that isn't the truth. I'm sure that, you know, Tom Cruise or Julia Roberts or The Flavor of the Month do have that. But it doesn't last. It never lasts. And so it's good to become what I considered myself to be, which was a jobbing actor or jobbing actress in which, you know, somebody had to pay the school fees, somebody had to pay the mortgage, somebody had to pay, you know, the bills for the children's new school and new shoes, and that was me. So I didn't always have the choice of the, of the best material. I did most of the time what I was offered. Now, we hear a lot about pay gaps these days. You've spoken about the dynasty pay gap when you went to get a pay rise and you found that you couldn't because your co-star, Jonathan Kainer, had written into his contract that he, ha- he had to be paid more than you. Yes. Were you shocked when you found that out? I, I, I have to say I was surprised. I wasn't shocked because that apparently seemed to be the norm. He also had in his contract that any advertising or any DVDs that came out had to have his picture predominantly in the centre and much bigger than any of the other stars, meaning Linda Evans and Pamela Sue Martin and myself always had to be uh, smaller. And if you look at any of the DVDs, which you can easily see online, you will see that Mr John Forsyth is always in the forefront. (laughs) And when you see what's happening now in Hollywood on gender pay, it does seem as though actresses are speaking more openly about it and are, in a way, negotiating pay similar to their male stars when they find out or suspect there's a discrepancy. Do you think there is good progress? Well, I think the progress has been made, but I think it really does depend on who you've got. If you've got Leonardo DiCaprio and you've got a young actress, you know, Jane Smith, who's just come up from... I don't know, uh, in, his, uh, in her second or third role, I don't think she should be get the same amount of money as Leonardo DiCaprio. By the same token, if you've got Julie Roberts and she's um, the star and you've got some young man, then Julie Roberts should get more money. I think it depends totally on the star and the star quality. And let's face it, stars are very valuable. I mean, a man like, uh, an actor like DiCaprio, Brad Pitt... George Clooney, there's uh, Tom Cruise. They're very valuable commodities. They bring in massive amounts of money to the box office and, and to the studios. And so they deserve what they get. And there's very, unfortunately, I don't think there's as many actresses that have that pulling power at the box office. I mean, you name it, me a couple. Meryl Streep is one. Yeah. 
Jennifer Lawrence. She, she yeah, was in Jennifer a pay Lawrence. Game. Yes, but she hasn't done anything for a long time, has she? Not that I've seen. No, I think maybe she's too busy negotiating her pay. <laughs> well, there's a point. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it should be done on talent rather than making it just absolutely, a blanket gender. Absolutely, absolutely. And but of course, in terms of you know writers, writers who are in the writers' room and you've got an, an equal amount of men and women, I think they should be paid equally, of course. Yeah. And one thing we ask all the guests on this podcast, unless we forget, which I feel you might be particularly good for, is what advice you give listeners for negotiating a pay rise? Oh, you say, this is what I want, and you have to mean it. And if they won't give it to you, then you say, then I'm, then I'm walking away. But you have to be prepared to walk away. I found that's worked. <laughs> <laughs> now, just to conclude this podcast, there are a few things I, I want to ask you about looking forward. Now, you said in the past that you never chased fame. No, never. So I was wondering, do you think the concept of fame has changed um, since you began as an actress? It sometimes feels that with the rise in reality shows, such as Love Island, there's a lot of people who want to be famous for fame's sake. And I wonder if you thought that was more common than perhaps when you were starting out well those people aren't actors are they i mean they're i don't know what they i think they're models and secretaries and they don't necessarily want to be actors i think that anybody who wants to be a real actor which is you know understanding your craft and, and loving it and knowing enough about the past knowing being able to talk about Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro and Betty Davis and knowing all of those, Laurence Olivier, those kind of actors, they, I don't think they just want to be famous. I certainly, you know, there's a lot of downsides to being famous. There's a lot of upsides to it too. But for people who just want to be famous, I think, I think that's uh, pathetic. Now, we've just had a Tory leadership contest here in the UK. What do you make of the victor Boris Johnson? I've known Boris for a very long time, at least 15, 20 years. And I like him a lot. And I think he would be a very good prime minister. And you spoke in the past about the grip the EU has on the UK. So I was wondering what you made of Brexit and how it is currently going. I don't understand Brexit anymore. There's, it's just Join the a, club. It's, it's a labyrinth of twists and turns. But I do believe, I mean, in, in the 70s when uh, we were had to vote on whether or not we wanted to join the European Union. Um, I, I, I definitely voted against it. And I also was very vehement in not... I mean, I didn't have any say, but I didn't want to, uh, Britain to go into the euro, which I'm so glad they didn't. Now, two very quick last questions from me. The first is something we again ask lots of people on this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Oh, the worst advice I've ever been given, oh, was to jump into a crocodile-infested <laughs> river while I was doing uh, a horror film and to say that it, I, it was all right, it wouldn't hurt you. And then when we, I got out of it, I was drenched in this uh, muck and the nurse came up and poured water all over me and insisted we go and shower and put put water in my nose ears throat everywhere and said that is you could have gotten all kinds of diseases from going into that river it's totally totally polluted that is awful 
<laughs> and finally, you've achieved so much in your career and we've only managed to touch on briefly, to be honest, in terms of this podcast. But I was wondering, in terms of your career as an actress, what would you like your legacy to be? Oh, dear me, I haven't really thought about that. I know I know, you're not finished and there's plenty more you'd like to do, but... <laughs> no, I know. Well, I just... Um, I just... That I entertained people, but, yeah, she gave a lot of people a lot of pleasure. <laughs> well, I think you've achieved that. <laughs> well, thank you, Katie. Thanks again, Joan, and thanks for listening. And while we have you here, now we have an event coming up, uh, How to Be a Dictator, which is an evening with Frank Dakota in conversation with Sam Leaf, where Dakota will be discussing his book. The event's on the 3rd of September in London. And to find out details and to get a ticket, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Frank. <laughs>